Open your Bibles to the book of Esther. The book of Esther. Esther 3. We continue our study of this remarkable history book. Esther 3. In Revelation 13, verse 1, a terrible beast comes out of the sea. The picture there is of troubled waters and mysteriously, surprisingly, frighteningly, an unknown beast slowly emerges, revealing himself piece by piece until he is entirely out of the water. That same beast in the seventh verse of the 13th chapter makes war on the saints and kills some of them. In a way very similar to that, suddenly out of the troubled waters in the Persian Empire, 450 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came to the earth, evil begins to arise. And it is a monster whose full terror cannot be seen at first. I present to you this evening the third chapter of the book of Esther, which reveals piece by piece the horror of a great danger. I would encourage you to take your pens and put a dot beside each sin that you see. I would like to show you 15 sins in Esther chapter 3. And this will be the first point of the sermon. If I could put it this way, it would be Evil is out of control. That is what we see unfolding right in front of us. And that is the theme and the thesis for my sermon. Those five words. Evil is out of control. When you read Esther chapter 3, that should be what you come away with. And I would like to show that to you in at least 15 ways. But that is only point one. After I have done my best to reveal the beast as he shows himself in this chapter. Then we will proceed logically to the second point that naturally comes out of this chapter. What are the worst evils in the Bible. Can you think of the worst possible things that are described in the Bible? Kill women who still have babies in there. Killing women who have babies in the book of Lamentations, chapter 1. What about in Matthew chapter 2? When Herod comes to the town of Bethlehem and the surrounding villages and kills every baby under two years old. 
Does that fit the list? What about Genesis chapter 6? When whatever the sons of God and the daughters of men did, whatever it was, it was so evil that God destroyed the entire world. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? When there it was so evil that God poured fire from heaven, burning rocks. What about Pharaoh in Egypt chasing down the children of Israel? My answer would be that Esther 3 surpasses all of those. And I attempted to show that to you tonight with a brief description of these sins in the book of Esther. Let's begin in chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. I underlined the word promote. Because that's the first sin. Unjust judgment is expected with a four-year-old. Foolish decisions might be expected and overlooked in a 16-year-old. But they are a sin when they come from your ignorance as a man or a leader of a country. If you are sinfully ignorant of what is your responsibility and you make a foolish decision based on that. It is a culpable sin. Look in chapter one, verse two. All the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman for the king had so commanded concerning him. There it is. There's a second bad law. The king commands that everyone has to bow to this bad man. Not only is a bad man raised to authority, but then you've got to bow down to him. We know it's a bad law because Mordecai won't obey it. And he's willing to risk pain and punishment. Sin number two. Look in verse four. Well, let's keep going in verse two just to see the context. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow or did him reverence. Verse three. And by the way, that teaches us that sometimes we need to disobey the government. During the time of COVID, I made a list of all the times in scripture when godly men disobeyed the government and God was pleased. There's over 20 of them. This is one of them. And then I made a list of over 20 times when men obeyed the government and God was angry. That is, God wanted them to disobey the government, and they didn't. This is an example where Mordecai did not bow. He broke the law, and he did exactly right in breaking that law. Verse 3, then the king's servants, which were in the king's gates, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they spoke every day unto him, and he did not hearken to them, that they told who? Underline the word told. Sin number two, gossip. The servants of the king decide this man has to be brought down a little bit. Why does he get to do what he wants to do? 
I would bring this to your attention that the sins of insignificant common men may make way for the sins of their superiors. Colin, you want to go look and see what that is? Oh, that's probably just an avo falling down. These men were inferiors. They were sitting at the gates. Haman never would have known that Mordecai wasn't bowing if those men didn't run to him and gossip. They were jealous. They were angry. They didn't like Mordecai. And they went and gossiped about him. Bad voting empowers evil rulers. Bad rulers are generally proof of a dirty pool from which they were chosen. Sin number three, verse five. Oh, keep going in verse four. I'm sorry, let's read the rest of the verse. They told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Verse five. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. Sin number three. Anger toward Mordecai. What does anger do to you? But it leads you to make very bad decisions. Richard Baxter wrote in his very large book on ethics. One way to conquer the sin of anger is to imagine what other people see in your face when you are angry. And yes, Richard Baxter says this, even though perhaps your mother also said this when you were young. Would you like it if your face froze that way? I remember my mother telling me that. Richard Baxter actually wrote that in his book 400 years ago. Imagine what other people see when you are angry. And then he writes, imagine that if your face always looked like it does when it is angry. Would you be a very attractive person? Now, if you would not like your face to always be like that, then why do you ever want your face to be like that? Haman is angry. His anger is out of control. That leads us to the next sin. Verse number six. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy the Jews, underline sought. He sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Azarus, even the people of Mordecai. What are you doing? This makes no sense. Why do you want to destroy them all? Oh, because he found out they were Jews. Let me make a few comments about anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is hating the Jewish people. It comes from that little word Sem right in the middle. Sem comes from the word Shem, the name. Shem is one of the three sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem eventually had children, and one of those grandchildren was Abraham. From Abraham come all the Jewish people. So anti-Semitism is anti-Shemitism. Anti-Abraham's childrenism. Anti-Semitism is a hatred of the Jewish people. Some things are called anti-Semitism. 
that are not. Recognizing the Jewish people are gifted or that they have certain stereotypical traits may or may not be anti-Semitism, just like recognizing that many people who run shops among the Tsongas are Ethiopians or Somalians. Why would it be racist to say a lot of Somalians, a lot of Ethiopians manage and run the shops among the Tsonga villages? What's the issue with that? But I would like to give some examples of real anti-Semitism. 3,500 years ago, the Egyptians in the time of Moses tried to destroy the Jews. And it says in the story of Joseph that the Egyptians were not allowed to eat with the Jews because they did not like the fact that the Jews were shepherds with sheep. And then, shortly after that, the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17 hated the Jews for no good reason. The Jews were walking along through their area, uh, above their area, north of their area, and they were going to go into the, into the promised land. But the Amalekites heard about them and didn't like them. The Jews were not going to take the Amalekites' land. But the Amalekites said, we don't like you. Now the Jews were told to destroy the Canaanite peoples, but the Amalekites weren't in that area. Why did the Amalekites hate the Jews? In Exodus chapter 17, it says, the Amalekites came behind the Jews and would sneak in and kill the weak and the old and the feeble who were at the back. Why would you do that? It doesn't kill the enemy or it doesn't kill the soldiers. It only makes the people furious. They're not coming to your land. They're not declaring war on you. They were, the Jews were told to kill some people, but not those people. But in Exodus 17, for some reason, the Amalekites say, we despise those people. And we despise them so much that we're going to come up and do raids in the back of their trail as they're coming into the promised land. We're going to come in and kill all the old ones. What good will that possibly do except make the whole nation angry at you? A thousand years later, Haman and those who were with him hated the Jews. Shortly after this story, we have Sanballat and Tobiah just a few years later in Nehemiah. They hated the Jews with what cause? Ezra has example of enemies who hated them. The Moabites, the Philistines in the book of Judges hated them. The Philistines in 1 Samuel hated them. The Ammonites, the Moabites, the Syrians hated them. Assyria, which was to the northeast of Israel in 720 BC, hated them. Babylon hated them. And skipping a few thousand years later, Russia in 1880 was having great political problems. And so to distract from the political problems that they were having with the Russian czar, they decided, here's what we'll do. We'll declare publicly propaganda that the real problem is coming from the Jews. So in 1880, a series of pogroms, P-O-G-R-O-M, pogrom, not program, but something sounds like it, pogrom. A pogrom is an isolated attack on a certain ethnicity of people. The Russians instituted a series of pogroms that went on for 30 years 
in an attempt to destroy the Jewish people who were in Russia. It happened again in Poland. It happened in Germany in the 1930s, going up until 1945, when the Allied forces, led by America and Britain, freed Germany and saved the remaining Jews in Germany in 1930. One of the most remarkable examples of this took place after Israel's declaration of being a country in 1948. The exact day they declared themselves a country, a collection of Islamic nations surrounding Israel on all sides except directly west because that's the water. A collection of Islamic nations declared war on Israel the day of their independence in May 1948. Why? Less than 20 years later, it happened again. Five years later, it happened again. It became so common that about once per decade of the state of Israel, a collection of Islamic nations would attack the country. And in 2005, Iran's president... Ahmadinejad wrote this, quote, anyone who recognizes Israel will burn in the fire of the Islamic nation's fury. Any Islamic leader who recognizes the Zionist regime, which he means the nation of Israel, means he is acknowledging the surrender and defeat of Islam. Israel must be wiped off the map Close quote. That's the leader of Iran. Have you read much about Iran? They have a lot of problems. Economic, social, political. Trying to get their children to have a higher standard of education. Trying to raise their economy. Their crime. Why in the world would he come out and say, our number one goal, if you ever looked at a map, there's, there's, some, there's some distance you've got to drive to get from Iran to Israel. Israel's a little nation there on the edge. Iran's pretty far away. You've got a lot of problems with your own people. Why would you come out and say, we hate them? At the same time, that same man published a map of the world with one country missing. Can you guess which country? Why would they do this? Come back here and ask, why would Haman do this? Move on to verse number seven. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the 12th year of King Hasuerus. Remember, it's the 12th year. We already marked down chapter 2, verse 16, the seventh year when Esther is married. This is five years after the marriage. Almost ten years after chapter 1 when he kicks out Vashti. God arranges everything for Vashti to be removed by the sins of a wicked king. An unconverted wicked king who's the grandson of another wicked king whose heart God turned in the beginning of the book of Ezra. Ezra starts with Cyrus being turned. Esther starts with Cyrus's grandson being turned. Ten years later, we see what's going to happen from that. 
Look at verse 7. What happens in this first month of the 12th year? They cast per. Per means the lot. Do you see it right there? That is the lot. Why do they say the word per instead of the word lot? Because at the end of the book, a holiday is going to begin. The holiday of Purim. And it's called Purim to today. So we have to keep that word per. But the word per means lot or dice. You throw the dice and you see what rolls. Who controls the dice? Well, not you, right? Has anyone ever learned how to spin dice to get the number they want? You can't control the dice. You can, you can practice, you can spin, you can, you can try all the things you want. You can snap your fingers after you've rolled them. Do Afrikaners do that? Tonga people do that. Do you do that when you roll the dice? Have you seen people do it? They roll and then snap their fingers as if that's going to make it turn. Everyone has their own ideas of how to control the dice, but you can't control it. Because Proverbs 16 says, everyone rolls the dice, but God controls how it turns. God even controls dice that are rolled. So if you're having a bad day playing a game, it was God who was in charge of that. Maybe he knew you needed to learn patience. In verse 7, he rolls the dice. Per, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day, month to month, to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. He's playing the dice every day, asking himself, when can I get them? When can I get them? When can I get them? And maybe God in heaven said, make it six, so that Haman will go and move on with his plan. There's a dot that goes here by verse seven, because it is a sin to follow superstitious ideas of what makes a good decision. Haman is trusting lots. That's sin. God controls the lots, but that doesn't mean that God controls them so that you should trust them. The sin of superstition is the idea that I can trust irrational ideas, irrational fears, and irrational hopes, and this will be my spiritual guide to success. How many people trust irrational hopes and they buy the lottery ticket based on that? It's superstition. How many people have foolish fears and unjustified, illogical uh, kinds of fears that guide their decision-making? This was a sin, and it's sin number five. Sin number six, verse eight. And Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom. And their laws are diverse. They're different from all the other people. Neither do they keep the king's laws. Stop right there and put a dot. What is this? You can call it a lie. Or you can call it false witness. This is the word I like to use, but it's not a formal word. Spin. What is spin? Spin is using words to present your case 
in a way that others would not agree if they knew all the things you know. Spin is using words that aren't technically a lie, but if those people knew everything you knew, they wouldn't use the words that way. You're only using the words that way in an attempt to conceal something from them and an attempt to set your own perspective and your own ideas before their eyes. It's a kind of lying. It's a kind of deception. It's a kind of manipulation. It's a desire to control people, but you fear, I don't think if they'll listen to me if I come out and say, hey, I'd like to be the king and I'd like you to do what I say. How's that sound? The person might not do what you want them to do. So you take the truth and you take the facts and you turn them just a little bit and you push some facts in the back so that they won't be noticed and you push other facts out in the front. Haman does this right here. Look at the way he says this. They have laws that are different from everyone else. Well, you could call them different from everyone, or you could say, what if I said it this way? Do you think the king would listen if you said this? Oh, king, there is a certain people scattered abroad among all the people in all the provinces of your kingdom, and they have laws given to them from God. What if he said that? Rather than saying they have diverse laws, what if he said they have divine laws? Is it true that the Jews' laws were different from all the other laws? That's true. Hey, you can say, did I lie? I didn't lie. I just said the truth. No, you said it. Oh, king, their laws are very different. In a sense, the laws are different. But they're good. Haman hides the good part. And accents the different. And then look at the next clause. It is, spin always works with multiple facts squeezed together and twisted. Neither do they keep the king's laws. Now that's tricky too. What law might he be thinking that the people don't keep? Mordecai. Go back to verse 2. The king commanded, bow down in front of Haman. Now the king had other laws. Pay your taxes, don't murder people. Did, Mur- did Mordecai murder? No. Did Mordecai pay his taxes? Presumably. What law is Haman angry about? One guy among the Jews won't, won't kiss my toe. I want him to kiss my toe. He won't do it. Remember, you said people have to give me honor. I want a man's face in the dirt. Now, what if he had said it this way? O king, there's a group of people scattered out throughout your kingdom, and they have laws given to them by God. And they don't want to give me as much honor as I want, and that you technically said they could give me. (coughs) If Haman had said it that way, would the king have listened to him? No. Haman spins it to get what he wants. That's a sin. I trust it will never be found in your mouths. Can you think of a New Testament verse? There's many. Can you think of a New Testament verse that makes us forever abandon spin? 
I'm thinking of two right from the Sermon on the Mount. And I can think of one from the epistles and one from Revelation. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Whatever is more than that comes from the evil one. That is, if you've got tricky rules, if you've got more rules than this, I just say yes, I say no. I'm just, I'm clear and I'm plain. I'm not trying to trick. Anything more than clear and plain speech came from the evil one. That's the words of Jesus. Who's the evil one? Satan. I think a lot of Christians learned to talk from Satan. Because if we learn to talk from God or Jesus, we just have clear, plain speech. I'm not trying to steal extra stuff from you. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm in a business deal and here I'm selling my bucky. I really would like you to give me 250000 But you know, I'm just going to speak clear and plain. You ask me what's wrong with it. You know, I don't know. You can look and see. Well, in a sense, you don't know everything, but you do know that it's been, it hasn't been starting very easily. But you just started it and ran it for 15 minutes before you brought it to the guy. So you know if he turns it on, it'll start nicely. But tomorrow morning, when it's cold, it won't start nicely. And you know that. That's the point. Our Lord says we speak clearly and plainly. And if you've got any other rules for talk other than clear, plain truth, that came from Satan. You didn't get that from Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's another one. Matthew 7, verse 12. Do to others as you would have them do to you. How do you want people to talk to you? Clearly and plainly. Haman doesn't do that. Spin. Sin number seven, verse number eight. <clears throat> Ignorance of the law. <coughs> Haman doesn't even understand what these laws are. Their laws are diverse from all people, neither do they keep the king's law. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. Three problems there. First of all, Their laws are diverse from all people. Number one, in many ways, the Jews' laws were not diverse from all people. The Jews said, do not kill. Did all people say, do not kill? The Jews say, do not steal. Do all countries say, do not steal? So everyone would agree with that, right? Haman, you are either lying or you're ignorant. Secondly, notice in verse number eight, he says, neither do they keep the king's laws. Actually... The Jews were commanded to obey the laws of the people under whom they were placed by God. Jeremiah 29 verse 10. So he was ignorant of the prophets. He was ignorant of what the Jews' laws actually said. Haman did not know. Or maybe he knew and he was lying. Number three. It is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. That is absolutely ignorant. Or it's a lie. And I wrote in the notes, ignorance of the law of God, Haman and the king. So either Haman and the king were both ignorant or the king was ignorant and Haman was a liar. But either way, there is culpable ignorance. Culpable means guilty. It was your fault that you didn't know. If you have a driver's license and you get in an accident 
And someone says, well, you break the law. There's this unusual law about, about overtaking. Well, but I didn't know that law. Ah, do you have a license? You should have known the law. That's called culpable ignorance. This was culpable ignorance for the king. He should have known the law. He has lots of lawyers. He, he went to them back in chapter 1 trying to find a tricky way to get a divorce. Just like Henry VIII trying to start the, king, the Church of England and to divorce his wife so he can marry a pretty girl half her age. Well, this king had lawyers who could have taught him. So he had culpable ignorance, not realizing that actually the Jews were very profitable citizens. And if you kill profitable citizens, you're only going to hurt your own kingdom and your own tax revenue. Sin number eight, verse number nine. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. Sin of man-pleasing. The sin of advancing men above God. It doesn't matter if it does please the king to do something wrong. Why would we ever say, if it please the king to contradict his own creator? Haman here falls to the sin of man-pleasing. And putting men above God in verse 9. Sin number 9. Verse number 9. That they may be destroyed. The ninth sin is intent to murder. Homicidal murder. Verse 9. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business. To bring it into the king's treasuries. How many talents will he pay? 10,000. That was 300 tons of silver. Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, calculates that the entire income, the gross domestic product of the entire empire at that year would have been 15,000 talents. Haman promises to pay 10,000 talents. He says, basically, I'll give you eight months of your kingdom's wealth. Where is he going to get that? Two sources. Haman had private wealth. That's where, number one, he's able to say, I will pay into the king's treasuries. He says, I can get control of a great amount of wealth. We already know he was an advanced man, a man of advanced standing from verse 1. And later on when he talks with his wife, he's able to raise a massive gallow in a day. He can just put out money to build up building projects. Haman is a man of wealth and influence. He has a sizable private fortune. But then on top of that's never going to be enough to pay eight months of an entire empire's gross domestic product. Where is he going to get the rest of this? Keep going. Look in verse number 11. The king said to Haman, The silver is given to you. Perhaps you have another translation there in verse 11. The Hebrew is tricky. Literally it says, The silver given to you. So it's difficult to tell if, if the king is saying, Well, it's your money. 
or I will give it all to you, or give me your silver, pay it now, or okay, you can take the spoil from the Jews and make up the 10,000. But whatever it is, it's this. The king and Haman recognize there's a lot of money out there and the king's going to get a lot of it and Haman's going to give a lot of it and none of them cares what happens to the Jews' money. Look down to chapter 3, verse number 13. The very end of verse 13. The twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of the Jews for prey. So they're going to take all the wealth from the Jews. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him and of the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. So they are going to take the money from the Jews and they're going to use that money to pay back the 10,000. So the king says, hey, I get money. You can have money. I'll tell you what, Haman. If you can work out that you get more tax revenue from me, go ahead and kill these people. Oh, and they have bad laws? Yeah. Oh, good point. Yeah, they have bad laws. They don't listen to me. Yeah, kill all these people. Take their money. Give me your private fortune. And anything more than that price tag, you can keep for yourself. Kill all the people and take their stuff. Give me a cut and you can keep the leftovers. So sin number nine is in verse number nine, intent to murder, genocide. Verse nine, they may be destroyed. Verse 10, and the king took his ring from his hand and gave it to Haman. That's dereliction of duty. If you are a man in charge of men under you or children under you, and you say, Oh, bad people can take care of these ones who are under my charge. You have sinned. The king sins by relinquishing his responsibilities. Verse 11, sin number 11. The king says to Haman, the silver is given to you and the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Whoever gave the king power over the lives of his subjects. This king has forgotten that there is a God in heaven. Sin number 11 is approving of murder and genocide. Sin number 12, verse 12. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month. And there was written according to all that Haman had commanded the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were over every province, to the rulers of every people, of every province, according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, in the name of King Ahasuerus was it written and sealed with the king's ring. What is the sin, the unique sin in verse number 12? The scribes obeyed a bad law and wrote it. Who do the scribes work for? The king. What should they have done? Said, no, we're not going to write that. Would you ever write down for money 
my wife is an evil woman. I wouldn't write that. Would you write down for money blasphemy against God? Would you write words that would allow your children or someone else's children to be killed? Will you blaspheme or lie or sin or encourage murder by your words? These scribes did. It happens again in verse 15. Look down at verse 15. The posts went out being hurried along by the king's commandment. Hurried along? Those couriers riding on the horses should have said, we won't carry that letter. If you knew the letter was going out that says, kill people, would you carry that letter? The twelfth sin is obeying bad laws. Number 13, verses 12 to 15, devotion to murder and theft. Not only... Do they agree to murder and steal? But look at the devotion. They send it to every province, every governor, all the lieutenants, every people, every language. So geographically, it goes to all regions. Look at verse 13. The letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces. And now there's three verbs. He wants to make sure he doesn't miss anything. Destroy, kill, cause to perish. Not only is it all geographic regions, but it's every word possible to make sure that those people will die. We want to make sure there's no loopholes in the law that anyone could live. Three different Hebrew verbs are used for killing. And then look at the societal brackets here in verse 13. All the Jews, it's not enough. Both young and old, let's cover all the ages. Little children and women, and that's why it parallels what you mentioned earlier from Lamentations, Cornet. Pregnant women being killed. Kill the babies, kill the women. Kill the weak, kill the innocent. Every one of them in one day. You've got 24 hours, execute them. Sin number 14 in verse 13. And take the spoil of them for a prey. Theft. In verse 13 again. It's cruelty. There's the 15th sin. We're going to murder women and children. We're going to act like animals. We're going to be barbarous, like dogs. Like an animal that would kill and eat its own young. And then look down on this in verse 15. You see the cruelty again in verse 15. The posts went out, being hurried on by the king's commandment. And the decree was given in Shushan the palace. Notice this, the very end of verse 15. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. Let's have some coffee. We've settled this. We've destroyed, we have just masterminded the greatest evil in a 1,500 page book. We've just arranged for an entire innocent group of people to be murdered and executed. And their crime is this. That one guy won't kiss my toe. Kill them all. And when we've done that, we're going to take all their stuff. And when we signed all that into law, whew, I feel a bit thirsty. Have them make some coffee for us. Let's, uh, cappuccino for me. 
absolutely untouched by your conscience. This is satanic, demonic, like King Herod who murdered the babies. No pains of conscience. Like the woman in Proverbs 6, when she's done committing adultery, when she ruins a family, she says, oh, I'll take a snack. I'm, I'm, I'm hungry. I, oh, what? I just ruined a family? Oh, it's nothing. Like in the French Revolution, oh, you hear the peasants are hungry? They have no bread? Well, then let them eat cake if the bread is finished. They're starving. Oh, I don't have time for that. I have a ball. I have to get dressed. Hundreds and thousands of my people are dying. Oh, don't bother me with those things. I can't be, I can't be uh, uh, interrupted with my daily life to hear about the pains and sickness of others. Rulers have great influence by their position to promote evil or to promote good. And this man, by writing bad laws as the king, he has advanced a wicked man and promoted and allowed all these sins to arise. And the evil has arisen with overwhelming force, surprising power. It's swept in on them. And I ask you now, why didn't Haman die from a heart attack? Heart attacks take people. Nabal, Abigail's husband, died like that from some kind of stroke-related sickness. Why didn't Haman die that way? Alexander McLaren, the godly preacher at the time of Charles Spurgeon in London, said, man is so weak that a drop of water can kill him. We have to put on masks so that we don't accidentally get a drop of water because it might kill us. We're so weak and helpless. Why didn't Haman die that way? Did God send these things like heart attacks and heart disease to many people? Yes, many people died that way. I just gave you an example of Nabal, an evil man who died quickly that way. Jonathan Edwards wrote in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, God has uncountable ways of taking evil people out of this world. Uncountable ways. Does God stop people from having heart attacks? Yes. Could God have sent a heart attack to Haman? Yes. Shakespeare wrote the words, all the world is a stage. And that's what we're seeing right here in chapter three. This stage is set and onto the stage has stepped an evil monster. The greatest monster that we've seen in the pages of the Bible because all the people will be executed and it's going to happen on the 12th month. That's in verse 13. In the 12th month, this is the first month. We saw that in verse seven, the first month to the 12th month, they're going to have to sit for 11 straight months, because it's the 13th day of January, uh, well, our, in, our month, in our calendar, what would be January, to the 13th day of December. So they're going to have 11 months. Why? To terrify the Jews and to make sure that all the bad people can be prepared with their hatchets. You're going to live your last days in abject terror, and then you're going to die once everyone's had time to prepare themselves. I cannot imagine a more evil, vile action in the Bible outside of the murder of the Son of God. It has arisen and it is there. But I tell you now in the second point of this sermon, and that is this. All the world is a stage. 
not merely for this grotesque monster, this hideous demon of evil to come out and stand absolutely out of control, but rather as Exodus 7 verse 5 says, God will bring down all the plagues on on Egypt so that the world may know God is God. Or in Psalm 9 verse 16, the Lord is known by the judgments that he executes. Or in Ezekiel 28 verse 22, I bring judgments so that you will glorify my name. Or in Revelation 14 verse 10, in the lake of fire, they will be tormented in the presence of the lamb. Here's the point. And this is all the point of point number two in the sermon. And that is this. God has allowed this beast to arise out of the sea. God has allowed this terrible evil to arise. You say it's purposeless. Where did it come from? This is like someone bumps into you and you take out a gun to shoot him. That's what they're doing here. And I'm going to kill you and all your family because you bumped into me while passing by each other in pick and pay. You didn't greet me passing in pick and pay. So I'm going to kill you and your whole family and everyone who speaks your language. There's no rationality to this. Where did this come from? It's evil out of control. Point number two is this. The evil is out of control in the real sense. I'm using a play on words on that phrase. Point number one is evil is out of control in the sense that It's on the rampage. It's terrorizing people. Point number two is evil is out of control, meaning it is no longer in control because actually there is a God and he set the stage this way and it must be this way. If the stage were not set in this way, then you could not have a savior. He must allow for all of this evil so that there can be a savior to save the people 11 months later. Evil is out of control in the sense that even now while the beast thinks I'm going to destroy the Jews, actually you are completely and totally not in control. You are out of control in the sense that you have no control. God is moving and controlling things. And God intentionally set the stage this way so that in chapter 8 and 9, there will be the joy that's listed at the end. In the end, you're going to see there is word after word after word that says there's joy and gladness and rejoicing and happiness and feasting. That joy and happiness and gladness and feasting cannot happen unless chapter 3 happens. Unless you allow this terrible demon to look like it is in control, then you cannot take control from it and have the joy and rejoicing at the end. God's saving grace could not be honored and glorified unless there were a great danger. Verse six, chapter three, verse six shows they were going to try to destroy all the people. Again in verse nine, again in verse 13, there must be a great danger or there is no glory to the Savior. There can be no great Savior if there is not a great danger. And secondly, evil is out of control and that it is not in control. Evil is being controlled. Number one, because the great Savior requires a great danger. So the great Savior looked down and said, go do those things. Come with your evil and with your irrationality and set yourselves up 
and I will come in and show myself to be a great savior. And secondly, because there has to be one who guides all the circumstances. I listed down about a dozen amazing circumstances that were all controlled by God. An ancient enemy of the Jews would be preserved and then exalted to power. That's unusual, verse one. Verse two, the king makes a foolish decree. He makes a really bad decision. Why would he do that? Verse two, Mordecai has the strength of mind and the strength of character to disobey a bad law. If Mordecai had not disobeyed the bad law, this never would have happened. God said, no, no, go do it. Well, should I disobey the law? I don't think I should obey it. Do it. Yeah, but I'm afraid. Just do it. I'm not bowing. God arranged that. Verses three and four. The king's servants had to be consumed with jealousy in order to gossip about Mordecai, an unusual event. Verse four, they had to know that Mordecai was a Jew. How did that come to pass? Verse five, the ancient enemy, the Jews had to meet Mordecai. How'd that come to pass? Verse six, he has to irrationally take his hatred of Mordecai and move it to who? All the Jewish people. Verse seven, the lots, the dice have to be controlled so that Haman thinks, hey, it's a good idea. Hey, let's do it. Who moved those dice? Verse eight, Haman must have the wit to frame his unjust case in a believable way in verse eight. The spin that Haman put, he thought, oh, I'm so clever. Look, the king said yes. He, I'm so clever. I'm the best speaker in the world. <laughs> I, could, I, could, I could sell ice to an Eskimo. Look what I did. I just made this king give me exactly what I want. And God said to heaven saying, I controlled your words to bring it about the way I wanted it. Verse number nine, Haman must have had a private fortune to make the claim plausible. All the while, while his private fortune is growing, he's thinking, who's the best businessman? (laughs) No one in my family is as good at this as me. (laughs) And God says, give him more, give him more, so that it will be plausible when he offers 10,000 talents. Verse 10, the king would listen to this ancient enemy on this precise point, even though it means murder and genocide of good subjects. That's ridiculous. If you wrote a book like that, a fictional novel like that, we'd all say, ah, this is a stupid book. It's unbelievable. But knowing that this did happen in history by the guidance of God makes us say God is in complete and total control of all these circumstances. Someone may say these circumstances are only amazing as you look backward. Whenever we look backward, any situation has what might look like incredible circumstances. That's the point. Every situation really is controlled by the great controller. If you say, well, but look back at the Anglo-Boer War, even that looks amazing. Exactly. Look at the Anglo-Boer War. Look at the movement of the Tsonga and Venda peoples. Look at the way the Afrikaners even came into being. Look at the movement of Europe and China and Asia. Look at the whole world. It shows there's a controller. A third way, evil loses control. Evil is being controlled. First of all, a great savior is only great if the danger is great. Secondly, there is one who's controlling. Thirdly, there has to be one who is worthy of trust. I close with this. In this story, you can trust the king or you can trust Haman or you can trust your own wits. 
or you can trust that one who's outside of yourself who gives orphans a father. This story, the danger is so great so that Mordecai will say, I have to trust someone outside of myself. Three ways this story glorifies God. A great danger brings a great savior. These amazing events show a great controller. And thirdly, thirdly, in the Old Testament, there is an object of trust you could call a rock. There's a savior and a guider. He will guide you into all truth, John 16, verse 12. And there is a rock. Jehovah is a rock, an object of our confidence and our trust. Brothers and sisters, there is a lot of evil in your lives. And I tell you this, Esther 3 tells you that you can look at your life and you will feel as if evil is out of control. It's this monster doing terrible things in your life. But remember the other way to look at that phrase. Evil is out of control, meaning it's not in control. God controls the evil so that you will see the greatness of the Savior, see the one who guides all events, and trust the rock. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us confidence in your movement of all of history. Grant to us that we would look to a great Savior who must conquer a great danger. Show us the greatness of the danger and the greatness of our Savior. Grant to us to be amazed at the providential guidance of the one who controls all things. Oh, we do love you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Teach us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.